This is The Unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. This week on The Unseen, I am happy to talk with researcher and author Preston Dennett. I had the chance to talk with Preston a few years ago, and I really found the guy super engaging. He has a really nice vibe about him, and that shines through in our conversation here today. Let me add that anything this guy says comes from a wealth of research, comes from a lot of time spent talking and listening to people who have had the direct contact experience, as well as UFO witnesses, as well as people who have had other paranormal experiences, like levitation and out-of-body experiences. He is very well informed on a rich variety of topics that all tie back into the one grand mystery that I know I am certainly struggling with and trying to make sense of. This interview was recorded on Sunday, August 11th, 2019. Please enjoy. Preston, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Hey, my pleasure. Good. Hey, you know, we did a wonderful interview back in 2012, and, and I just looked that up, and it's two and a half hours long, and we covered a lot in that one. And that is on my old site, which is still all archived. And um, yeah, that was a great interview, and I felt like we really, really dug deep into into a lot of your personal experiences, too, on that one. So I may link that to this, because I thought that was, there was a wealth of really great info in there. And, and I also want to say I've been really looking forward to this interview. I think you've got a really nice way of presenting your information and i just i'm really grateful that you're out there doing the hard work hey i appreciate that i love it i've been doing it a long time i was just thinking you know not too long ago i've devoted most of my life to this subject so i'm having fun good well i haven't quite devoted most of my life yet but it but my life presently feels fully devoted to the to the subject it feels like it sort of came out of the blue in around 2000 nine or so about a decade ago and it just so the last 10 years have been i mean i've just been a focused 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 let me let me say something here you have a lot of books out there how many books do you have uh it's 24 actually at last count but i've got more coming <laughs> and uh, and a lot of those are sort of collection books right like you know uh ufo accounts in california and then the two books we'll be talking about here the Schoolyard UFO Encounters, and The Healing Power of UFOs. They're like a kind of a collection of a lot of stories. Yeah, I, I like to choose a theme. You know, The Healing Power of UFOs has 300 healing accounts. Schoolyard UFO Encounters has 100. I wrote like six or seven books about various states, mostly in the Southwest. And uh, some books about levitation. I wrote a book on human levitation that had well over 100 accounts. Oh, and let, let me, so was that in a conjunction with UFO accounts, the human levitation thing? Uh, not directly. I found that, you know, I started writing about paranormal and researching because it, it is connected, as I'm sure you know. Uh, and levitation certainly comes up in UFO accounts. And I just wanted to differentiate it from human levitation, which is a natural human talent, as it turns out, appearing in all cultures, stretching back, over 4,000 years, uh, with first-hand accounts even occurring to the present day. And uh, a researcher named um, Diana Pasalka recently published a book, and she's a she's a practicing Catholic, and she teaches um, religious studies at the University of Wilmington in North Carolina. And that was kind of her way in, in a way, was was researching levitation cases of saints, yeah, of ancient Catholic saints, and that was her way in, to a some degree, to the modern UFO accounts. Yeah, it's shocking. If you look into the levitation, I don't think people really have any idea how much evidence there is out there for it. And uh, the first cases, or most of them, do come from saints, you know, in various cultures, but it's also Native American, you know, medicine men and African sorcerers and Anyone with a spiritual bent, it seems to happen to. Lots of cases involving children as well. And for that matter, you know, businessmen and housewives and just normal people. 
as well as it shows up in the UFO abduction lore all the time where people feel like they're being levitated out through windows or up from suddenly they're rising off the ground and, and uh, entering a craft usually. Yeah, but not always. I mean, there's the Dr. X case, which he was actually had a healing. This is in France. The case comes from Jacques Vallée. It involves a doctor who was struck by a beam of light and it cured him not only of partial paralysis, but of an ax wound on his ankle. And following that, several weeks or months later, he had two spontaneous levitation episodes, which weren't apparently caused by the UFO itself, but, you know, as the result of the encounter, somehow it transformed him or woke this ability up, perhaps. I remember this case, and it was very interesting because uh, I read Jacques Vallée's account of it, and he's a very, very dry writer in some degree, right? He's kind of keeps his scientific mindset there at the forefront, but you could tell there was kind of a wow factor even for him in that case. Yeah, it sure, sure shook me up, you know, finding out how much evidence, I mean, all of this stuff, finding out UFOs were real was not like good news by any means. It was real shocking. So that's, that's your personal story. Let's hear that real quick if you can. Yeah, I was skeptical. It was 1986, didn't believe in any of this stuff, heard a report on the news, and I thought, well, this pilot, Kenju Tiroshi, it's a famous case, uh, thought he's lying or misperceiving. But I remembered my brother saw a UFO. Years ago, we all laughed at him and didn't want to hear it. So I asked him about it and got a real shock. He and his two friends, they were teenagers, chased this metallic object with colored lights, a dome on top, or within a few hundred feet of it. It darted around, all the classic, you know, descriptions you hear. I'm like, Mark, you are kidding me. Because I could see he wasn't lying. He's like, no, no, for real. You know, you can talk to Greg and Phil. They were there. So I did. And uh, just kind of snowballed from there. Found out my sister-in-law had had an encounter uh, with humanoids as well. Later, uh, I had a best friend who had missing time. Another friend who had a very close-up sighting. I brought it up at work. That was a huge mistake. All the ladies that I worked with uh, came running up to me and were like, yeah, UFOs, my whole family saw one. Oh, one followed me home from the library. That's what Dorothy said. And she says, Preston, it's so weird. We lost an hour of time. I don't even know how to describe it. She says, it takes five minutes to get home from the library. We left at nine and we got home at 10.15. And this object darts away. And this was before Missing Time had become a bestseller. This was you know, pretty early on. There just wasn't a lot out there about this. So yeah, it shook me up for sure. <laughs> And you've since gone on to be, you know, to do all these books and to be now here. Here's a question. What percentage of your of your work is um, focused on the abduction experience or the contact experience? Oh, a significant percentage, I would say. I feel like that's always been the forefront of research. I've gotten two books that focus just on that. I'm working on another. And uh, certainly that appears in all the UFOs over California and other states. I've got a whole section on that. So, yeah, I think that that's where there's a lot of information to be learned. And uh, so that's pretty much where I have focused my research. But I have also done a really broad type of approach to the subject because I want to understand it. And I just can't see myself understanding it unless I look into ghosts and Bigfoot as well. And, Absolutely. You know, landings, right, and crash retrievals <laughs> and the whole disclosure movement and so on. So this is a big, big subject. Yes, and that's it gets kind of overwhelming. It gets kind of overwhelming. And there's, you know, folks have specialties and it's tough to be a generalist in this because you just to keep up with everything is is a, just not enough hours in the day. So with all these books and all these um, collection books where there's a collection of stories with a theme, you must have amassed, you know, your file cabinets must be full, as well as the hard drive on your computer must be pretty full. But I mean, also your own brain must be pretty full. And how has this, like right now, you know, after all these years, how has that impacted you, your your thoughts about the subject? Um, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I have amassed a lot of knowledge. I've, I've got a book, a 
room in my house devoted just to books. I had to. And uh, my garage is filled with files. And, yeah, and it, ha- it does definitely do something to your brain. I've got a pretty good memory for this stuff. You know, I can watch a movie and it's out of my mind the next day. I have to watch it three times to really let it sink in. But with this stuff, it sinks in. I'm interested in it. I'm able to just hold a lot of this UFO knowledge in my head. I think just because I find it so compelling. It's weird because I don't really have a history of encounters myself. It's certainly within my family. And when I started researching this, I had a, started having regular you know, sightings for sure and some involving interaction. But for some reason, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I love this stuff. Yeah, it's a very seductive subject. That's the way I sort of put it. Like it's hard to turn your back on it once you start pulling on those threads. Yeah. So your 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 schoolyard book, the two books we're going to talk about, this, the Schoolyard UFO Encounters and the Healing Power of UFOs, we can jump all over the place, but those are the two I want to focus on. Your schoolyard book is 235 pages long, and your healing book is 541 pages long. So that's a those are two pretty big books on what is kind of an outlying little subject matter. Yeah. Oh, go on. Let me tell you, I never want to. I never want to write another 540-page book again. <laughs> is that your biggest book, the healing book? Yeah, that's the biggest book I've ever written, and certainly the biggest research project. Uh, it was really difficult, uh, but very rewarding ultimately, because I feel like both of these are super important subjects. They're really having a significant impact on people. And you must know Ray Hernandez from Free. Oh yeah. Did he did he put any pressure on you to do this healing book? Uh, he he actually requested that I write a chapter in his book Beyond UFOs. Okay, that makes it good. Got it. Okay. Because uh, he had read, you know, I actually my first book was UFO Healings, and that covered 100 cases. So the Healing Power of UFOs is sort of a follow up book, and Ray Hernandez had read the UFO Healing book, and it amazed him. He said, and he really changed his outlook toward UFOs, which I hope so, because this subject gets a lot of negative publicity. Well, so if you take if you take your old healing book and stack it on top of your new healing book, you've got about like over like 700 pages of UFO healing. Yeah, I included all the old cases in the new book. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So it's kind of in some ways a second version, but I mean, literally, it's got two-thirds new information, so I couldn't really call it that. Uh, But that book is out of print, so uh, I was able to get the rights back and uh, decided to just redo it. Well, it's it's a really interesting book, really interesting book in the sense that, you know, there's some very profound stuff in that book. You know, people on the verge of suicide, I thought that was really touching, those segments as well as some pretty benign simple stuff like people with sinus issues <laughs> and their sinus issues are cleared up so uh, you know on the scale of one to ten i mean obviously that's a medical issue but boy it sure isn't like you know being on the doorstep of suicide or having cancer yeah suicide who knew that this is what the tenth leading cause of death in the united states and uh did not expect to find cases where people were healed of suicidal depression or stopped in the act one guy was actually had a gun to his head when a gray et appeared and uh, stopped the suicide it's amazing i just read that account just a few minutes ago just before starting i had i had the paper book on the desk here and i was uh, flipping through it and that's exactly why i asked the question because i found that case so profound now that guy that was in southern california and he um he also I think he had 10 hours of missing time, if I remember correctly in the story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he had gone there. It was the end of the day, and I think it was the next morning. Uh, So he had quite a bit of missing time that he doesn't remember. And I don't believe he had a history of encounters. Uh, I'd have to look that up. And did you you meet with him personally? Uh, No, that was a case from New Fork, I believe. Okay. I was able to meet with a lot of various healing cases. In the schoolyard, UFO encounters, same thing. I drew on a lot of a real wide research net, including cases from APRO. That was very helpful. Uh, NICAP, QFOs, 
New Fork MUFON, the UFO News Clipping Service, uh, lots of old books. Most researchers had at least one case to contribute. And I was able to track about five or ten myself. Great. Hey, we have reached the end of the first 15 minutes, and we will need to take a short break. For non-members, there will be a few commercials. But for members, we'll be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and my guest is Preston Dennett. And right now we are talking about his healing book. The book is titled The Healing Power of UFOs. And um, you just pointed out, we talked just moments ago, about the issues of suicide that have been showing up in these reports. People being one guy with a gun against his head in the moments before suicide is confronted by small greys. So I have been pulling on my own threads and my own research and I have um, my my data pool is not as big as yours I, I I don't need a whole garage for all my notes let me put it that way uh, but I do have two separate accounts of people who were on the verge of suicide like right moments before about to commit suicide and an owl either flew up against their windshield one woman who's driving and uh, a man left a building and there was an owl on the sidewalk just as he was leaving the building. And both of these people, like the owl really didn't do anything, but both of these people took these owls as like a portent, as a as a sign, and they're still here. So the owls, as I said, didn't really need to do anything. All they need to do is to appear in front of the, the witness, and they very clearly took it as a as an omen that they shouldn't follow through with this. Wow, amazing. Yeah, one guy I talked to, he was having suicidal depression. His girlfriend had left him. He was having all kinds of health problems. He was in the middle of an argument when this UFO shows up and beams him, kind of. Suddenly everything, it's pretty high up there, but everything around him turns red, and it freaked him out. And he got in his car and took off, and this object followed him. And uh, he just got this really weird feeling of peace and following this incident. He became very interested in issues like God and cosmology and uh, started having all kinds of premonitions. His health cleared up and he was no longer suicidal. It completely changed him. Well, I read that account just before, too. I was I was trying to search out the suicide uh, accounts. And my thought when I read that was like the UFO occupants somehow staged managed an argument. Because it felt like he needed to be separate. He needed to be away from his partner or his girlfriend at the time and needed to be zip off and be alone. And I was like, oh my gosh, they somehow, they orchestrated that argument. That was a thought. I have no proof of that. But that was the one thing that came to my mind. I do think that there's a heavy duty manipulation going on on the part of the ETs with humans, bringing people together, uh, you know, into relationships even to that level. And certainly, I've had all kinds of coincidences where people will come up to me and start talking about UFOs to the point where I'm like, well, gosh, am I, I'm, don't even, I'm not wearing a UFO shirt or a hat or anything. You know, they don't know me. It's strange. I, I am at now at the point where I feel that this has become normal. Yes, it is remarkable, but it has, I've realized that this is somehow the way the universe seems to want to work or that the, let's say the UFO occupants are somehow looking down at us and they are, our reality is some big grand chessboard and all they need to do is move the pieces around <laughs> to, to wherever fits their needs. Let me just say that uh, the relationship thing that you're talking about, orchestrated relationship, I'm, I feel like uh, I'm in one now. So yes, both Andrea and I have both had had contact experiences and we've met under very weird synchronistic manipulated circumstances yeah one guy interviewed don a bus driver in utah was taken aboard a ufo and he actually had a healing experience where he was healed of the common cold and et came into his bathroom i believe it was and fed him a vial of liquid and it cured him of a very persistent chest cold uh, he normally doesn't get sick and this was turning into pneumonia but earlier he had an experience where he was taken on board and these ETs, I believe they were gray type, showed him an image of a woman and said, flat out, this will be your girlfriend, and she's going to contact you. 
And she did over the internet. Turned out she was in, gosh, a Middle Eastern country <laughs> on the other side of the world. And uh, they ended up hooking up and becoming boyfriend and girlfriend for years. And the same thing happened to his son, too. Yeah, this is, it's tough. Oh, boy, I could, I could, um, I got about 15 different stories that are scrolling up through my brain right now, but that'll take us, take us away from, let's jump to the, uh, the other book, The Schoolyard Accounts. And, you know, what was the genesis of this? Yeah, boy, this book is just freaking me out. You know, I, I just, I'm breaking down in tears doing the research for this. Because uh, these are little kids and they're so precious and so innocent. And man, oh man. Yeah, for me, it began actually very early on. My first humanoid case was a schoolyard case. My sister in law was a college student at the time. She was walking by near her home in Van Nuys. Uh, she had attended Stag Street Elementary School as a child. Now she's a college student. It's late at night. She's walking by Stag Street Elementary School because she had just retrieved an abandoned shopping cart. And as she's walking by the school, it's on her right. You know, she's on the sidewalk. She's right next to the school. There's a courtyard in front of the school with a big floodlight. She sees two little children under the floodlight. She thinks, well, that's weird. You know, it's kind of late at night. And as she walks right up next to them, she sees that they're not children. They're bald, you know, they're about four and a half feet tall, maybe a little taller, uh, large heads, large dark eyes, green jumpsuits, and they turn and look at her. She's 10 feet away, and they're grays. They lock gazes. She freaks out. She says it was absolutely shocking, very, very scary. It was as if she had been woken up when she's already awake because she just couldn't process it. They were not human. And there was, she had never heard of aliens. Uh, and she just walked away as quickly as she could without completely panicking. And I remember hearing this. She's describing these grays. You know, at that time I had read, there was three or four books out there that described this stuff. Maybe Betty and Barney Hill, Travis Walton, you know, a few of those kind of books, uh, Betty Andreessen. But really there wasn't information out there about this. And, uh, she was describing it to a T, and it freaked me out, and also freaked me out that it's right in front of a school. I'm like, what are they doing right in front of an elementary school? Did you see a UFO? And she says, no, but they could have easily landed on the playground because it's completely hidden. So that was my first clue, and I didn't really pick up on it until I kept getting cases, kept hearing about cases. And more recently, I heard about the Opalaka case. Uh, the Crestview Elementary School in Opalaka, Florida in 1967 was visited by UFOs, three or four of them, and one came down and landed in the field behind the school and was viewed by some 200 students and a large group of teachers. It was a very prolonged encounter, and they actually evacuated the school during the middle of the encounter and sent the children home early. And when I heard that, I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's the, you know, there's the Rua Zimbabwe case. I'm sure you've heard of that. Uh, 62 children. That's the Ariel school, correct? Right. Yeah. Ariel. That's the most famous case of this type. But there was another case, Broadhaven, Wales. And uh, there was the Hillsdale, Michigan case. And all these cases started popping into my head. I'm like, I wonder if this is the thing. <laughs> you know, are, are schools attracting UFOs? Because I'd, I'd written about what I call UFO attractors before. Uh, I mentioned earlier, mines, copper mines, gold mines, uh, certainly rocket launches, graveyards. UFOs are very attracted to graveyards for whatever reason. And schools was definitely a thing. I got cases from most, I mean, all over the world, <laughs> stretching back. Let's see, the earliest case was 1853, but it's just one. And it didn't really start until 1950. Following that, it's a case every year, at least. And so what's the agenda? Why schools? <laughs> right? Oh, man, oh, man. This is what freaked me out. Uh, because these are not normal sightings. This is not a flyover. This is not a coincidence. They are targeting schools. These are very low-level sightings, usually during the day. 
30% involve humanoids and landings. Uh, often these cases will last, you know, not a few minutes, but, you know, several minutes, hours, over a period of days. So these are clearly unusual encounters in that they're very close. And I think there is an agenda. I, and uh, just judging on the brazen behavior of these UFO occupants, I feel like they want to be seen. And this is definitely a type of behavior we do see. But usually UFOs are evasive. You know, they're not playing around all day long uh, in full view of everybody. Except in these cases, they are. <laughs> and I just can't get away from the fact that they're showing themselves off on purpose to children. And this is where I got a real chill. Half the cases involve elementary schools. You know, the youngest of our children. So there's definitely an agenda here to, uh, I think, convince people, particularly children, that the UFO phenomena is real. And in some cases, they do land. There are abductions. There are messages given. So it does move beyond that as well. And in the aerial event, the one that took place in Zimbabwe in the late 1990s, I believe, there's a quote here. I'll just read it. So Francis was a student, and Francis received a message that when we're older, something's going to happen to the earth. We can stop it. Something's going to happen. And that pollution mustn't be. You take a very impressionable child and give them a telepathic message on the fate of the of the planet Earth. I mean, that's a that's a heavy burden for a nine-year-old. Right. And she's not the only one. In the Rua Zimbabwe case, a good handful of children, 10, I believe, uh, got messages about the environment, almost exclusively about the environment, which doesn't surprise me one bit because that is their, the ETs, single greatest message to hum humanity and has been ever since people have been contacted. And I don't care if you're talking about the contactee era of the 1950s or greys or human looking or, you know, the praying mantis. It's always that message, warnings about the environment uh, from adults onto, you know, these schoolyard cases. So uh, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, there's so, pretty rare for people to get messages uh, in terms of the schoolyard cases. But that's almost always what it's about. And there's another witness. Her name is Emily Trim, and she has been uh, talking publicly now. She was in the late 90s. She was maybe, I don't know, 10 years old or so. And now she's an adult, and she, I believe she's living in Canada now. And um, she spontaneously began doing artwork. Yeah, it's, a, it's really amazing how children are transformed by these sightings. One common quote I hear and uh, certainly read about is that children think about what they saw on that day, you know, when they were 10 years old or whatever, uh, every day of their lives. It's something that they just don't forget. Some of these children have come away from their experience very interested in esoteric subjects or quantum physics or science or this sort of thing. Uh, that's not at all uncommon. You know, it's interesting because I think about that where you, like I've heard it many times where people will spontaneously begin drawing. I never drew it. And now I started painting. And Emily Trim is one example. Christopher Bledsoe is another example. I've, I've heard that many times. Oh, that's interesting because I, 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 I was never considered myself an artist either. But one day I'm just looking at these images. And I'm like, I could draw that. And I started drawing um, not too long ago. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I'm by no means good as my sister-in-law who does the cover for my books. But geez, what you're saying is freaking me out a little bit because I didn't know that was a thing. And it certainly, I feel like it's happening to me right now. Yes, all these little clues. It's hard to discount the overall power of this stuff. But what I was wondering was, like, well, how come, like, there's not physicists and, and biochemists and nuclear engineers that are, you know, that are, delving deeper into their own disciplines or i actually have found out i've talked to a number of people who have just spontaneously said oh i went back to college to study advanced physics like that's like you don't hear many people saying that and i've heard several people who've had direct ufo encounters say that so you know it seems like they're 
oh, how to say it? Like they've got an agenda and they're and they're stage managing the like the actors on the stage of of Earth right now for some bigger picture. Yeah, um, it's a little it's a little worrisome when you get all the. I mean, it's not a little worrisome. It's very worrisome. All the dire warnings about the environment and about nuclear catastrophes. Yeah, ultimately, I feel like I'm pretty hopeful about it because what we're seeing is ETs who do seem to have our best interests in mind. Uh, and with a phenomena that has a lot of controversy surrounding it, um, with abductions, you know, people being kidnapped against their will, that's a crime. I don't care what planet you're from. Um, that's not nice. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't appear that they're trying to harm people. They're giving these messages with schoolyard encounters. There are several kids who uh, went on to become very prominent UFO researchers. Um, gosh, Malcolm Robinson. He had a schoolyard sighting in Scotland with his friends, this big glowing silver disc, or rather a sphere, very low. They thought, could it be a balloon? They decided it wasn't. And they looked away and looked back and it was gone. And he went on to become you know, a leading UFO researcher in Scotland, wrote UFOs over Scotland, volume one and two. So that's something we see. And I think you're right. The ETs are trying to publicize not only their presence, but to wake people up and push them into researching mathematics. One lady, gosh, I'm just going full force here. The subject gets me all fired up. She uh, had an experience in Crestview, or not Crestview, uh, gosh, I'll have to remember the name of the school. But uh, she had a, a series of encounters over a period of years in her elementary school. This is in Northern California, in Grass Valley. And uh, she said these greys would come and visit the children on the playground and were kind of in screen memories and looking like little children most of the time, but sometimes she could see through the screen memory and it was a gray and it would talk to her about mathematics and things like this. Tried to abduct her a couple of times, trying to you know, pull her onto a, says, come with us. She refused. And uh, she says there was, she had to piece together these memories over the years, but feels like it began in kindergarten and went all the way through the end of a uh, third grade, fourth grade. And a lot of students were involved. And And so this was, ongoing at, at the schoolyard. And it, did you talk to her directly? Uh, no, I wish. This was a case from New Fork, okay. National UFO Reporting Center. Uh, so I followed up on where I could. One lady I did talk to, she walked up to my table at Contact in the Desert and just out of the blue, had no idea I was researching the subject, says, oh, I've got to tell you what happened to me on the playground at the school in Mentor, Ohio. I'm like, please do. <laughs> and uh, she was 11 years old, almost 12, when her two friends, three friends, came running up to her and said, look, look, look at this. And coming out of the sky was this, not quite a saucer, more egg-shaped, but silver, and coming lower, 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 right over the trees next to the playground. And she says, the, the lady I talked to, she doesn't want her name used, she said, Preston, I got the weirdest sense of timelessness. It was as if the entire world disappeared and it was just me and the UFO. And I'm like, wow, because I'd read this and I'd heard this from other people. In some cases, actually stop time. I've got a first-hand case of that. And uh, she described how this object just sat there looking at her and she looked at it and she got a telepathic message. And it, the UFO occupants said, remember this day which she has, it's been 40 some years. And it was really impressed her deeply. This object actually sank down behind the trees and apparently landed. And I'm like, wow, here we go again, because this is what they do. They pick a grove of trees next to a school and they land in that grove of trees. It's in case after case after case. And they're watching this and watching this and then suddenly it takes off straight up like a silver bullet and is gone. Uh, but a real impressive case. Preston, we've got to take a break. We have reached the end of the free dreamland section, and we will be back shortly. For members, this is the halfway mark, and we will continue this interview in just a moment. We are back on the unseen for the final half hour with my guest, Preston Dennett. 
Preston, just as we were ending, you were talking about a schoolyard account. I want to add, um, my dad went to Hillsdale College. So I have a very, very slight connection to Hillsdale. He had graduated long before the 1966 event. But I had actually never heard the account of Hillsdale College. What actually happened Wow! at that event in 1966? Yeah, that was the case that really broke the whole schoolyard case open. Several researchers have noticed at this point that schools are attracted to UFOs. And this was the first school that really got a lot of publicity. Uh, when this object showed up, it was during a period of large, lots of activity. This is March 1966. And a group of students were in the dorm when they noticed this object hovering in front of the school over the swamp there. And uh, they called forth more witnesses. And this object stayed there. It was hovering. And soon there was about 87 students watching this thing and many school faculty and this object stayed for about two hours darting around hovering came very close to the school at one point causing a little bit of a panic uh, maneuver maneuvered around an airport beacon and actually landed in the swamp at one point at which point at that point all the boys started taking off towards the field to sort of get close to it but it took off uh, yeah, there's a lot written about the Hillsdale case, but most people aren't aware that this object did actually land right in front of the school there and caused a huge uproar. Blue Book, of course, heard about the case. J. Allen Hynek came to investigate. He held a press conference and uh, had just started the investigation, literally days in, and uh, started offering possible explanations, one of which was swamp gas. Well, the press kind of latched on that term and publicized it and says, Air Force says it's swamp gas. This caused a huge uproar. Uh, at the time, Ford was, I believe, uh, the governor of the state, and he called for a congressional investigation, and there actually was one. It was the first congressional investigation into the subject. And ultimately, this led to the death of Project Blue Book, who wanted out of this UFO situation, so formed the Robertson panel and uh, was able to come up with a negative conclusion to the UFO phenomena and closed down Blue Book you know, a few years after that. So it had a huge impact in a lot of different ways. I'm from Michigan, and, and Jerry Ford was a, a representative from the Grand Rapids District. So, oh, All right. He was the one that, that called the congressional hearings on this, which is quite remarkable. And I, there's little whisperings and stirrings right now about something very similar. And let's, I don't know what the future will bring on that thing as far as what's been going on with the, uh, uh, the New York Times accounts and uh, Tom DeLonge's To the Stars thing. And there is there's a lot of talk. Let's see what action shows up as far as it, it showing up in the halls of Congress. Right. Yeah, I've heard the whispers. Yes. <laughs> Stuff is coming down the pipeline. I've heard the whispers too. Hey, you uh, have a case from that you heard from Leonard Stringfield. And what, what's that story? Yeah, this is one of my favorite cases. I don't know. There's just something really touching about it. Leonard Stringfield's a very well-known researcher, uh, well-respected, mostly known for crash retrievals, uh, based in Ohio is where he was. And, uh, he got this case. He received this call from a frantic father who was really upset. His son was missing. The father's son was missing. And Leonard's like, why are you calling me? And, and the father explained, well, his son, the day before, was walking home from school and a UFO followed him. He had gone to school to do a sort of a charity event. And this UFO followed him home from school. And the kid was terrified that he was going to be kidnapped. And his parents didn't believe him. So the next morning, he withdraws $500 from the bank, leaves a note on the table saying, I'm leaving. I'll call you back when I feel safe. You know, love your son. And it disappears. He runs away from home. So the father calls the police, calls Leonard Stringfield because of the UFO connection. And uh, what happened is the, they found the boy. The police found him at Atlanta Airport. This is in Georgia. And the kid was very terrified. They brought him home and uh, he insisted on calling Leonard Stringfield and speaking with him. And it was Leonard who got the full story out of the kid. And it turned out a year earlier, 
He was at his high school. This is in 1975. Uh, actually, now it's 1974. One year earlier, this kid was at his high school, and a UFO came right down over the playground and started like looking at him. Uh, he felt it was coming for him, and it, he became very nervous about it. The object left. He went home, and that night he had a visitation by short, bald, large-eyed humanoids who said, don't be afraid. You know, we're not here to hurt you, but you do need to come with us. And uh, that's how it all started. So a year later, when this UFO comes back, it just sent him into a complete panic. It's an amazing case. Wow, that's really unsettling. So he, here's a question. How do you verify these accounts, like the truth of these stories? And I ask this because I struggle with my with this myself in my own research. Um, you know, what, what efforts do you make to verify these stories? Uh, every effort I can, you know, uh, with the, the earlier published accounts coming from other researchers, it's of course more difficult, but when you have your own case, uh, where you're talking to the witness yourself, uh, I, I do a preliminary interview, a follow-up interview, another interview. I asked it for character references. Um, I'll see if I can, if they can send me any kind of documentation. Uh, one guy I interviewed, uh, Dr. Cornet, uh, he's actually a guest on Coast to Coast. He had an encounter in Conard High School where Grays came in, stopped time, took him out of the band room there and put him back. And it was a half an hour later and everyone's freaking out. Uh, he sent me all kinds of proof that he was a student at that school. You know, he sent me a picture of him in his band uniform, uh, this sort of thing. So you get evidence where you can, and you can kind of tell after, you know, researching the subject for a long time and interviewing a lot of people uh, when they're sincere and when the people start crying uh, and when they say, you can't use my name, um, you know that this is not something they're trying to hoax. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, just one question about this case. So he was missing from the band room for a half hour. Did people notice him missing? No, and this is what's so strange. Um, it's as if everyone's shut off or time itself is stopped. And I know how that sounds, but there's a handful of cases like this in just this book. And I've certainly got other cases like this in my own research uh, where people are shut off or turned off. There's one case I couldn't find. Gosh, it's kind of what inspired me to write this whole book. And I'm reading this account of a kid who was at school in class when Grays walked in. And he said the weirdest thing happened. Everyone stopped moving. He couldn't move at this point, but he was still conscious. And Grays were just walking up and down the classroom aisles, doing stuff to children he couldn't really see. And suddenly, time stopped, they're gone, and everything's back to normal, and nobody notices a thing. Whereas another case in Missouri, man, oh man, this it was a high school up in the Ozarks area. This lady, young woman named Jean is a high school student is attending a slumber party in the gymnasium there. There's some 60 students and she and a group of about 10 or 20 other students are in a smaller room in front of the sort of an ante room. And they're holding a little kind of impromptu seance and telling ghost stories when this cloudy figure enters through the wall and descends upon the group, causing panic and People black out for a second and uh, are paralyzed for a second and can't remember. Suddenly it's gone. Everyone's completely panicked. They run out into the main room. No one saw anything. And it's years later, Jean goes under hypnosis and recalls grays, three or four grays entering into the gymnasium. Everyone's shut off. The grays take four girls, including Jean, lead them out of the gymnasium into a UFO that has landed next to the school and gives them each physical examinations. She's shown a hybrid baby. It's a pretty standard case in a number of ways. Uh, but she's still in touch with some of the other students who remember the incident and don't want to talk about it. But it's another case where ETs apparently stopped time. They have this ability to do that. Yeah, th so this is interesting. So the woman, Jean, she was performing a ritual act, right? She's, well, you know, you said they were they had, were having a little... Yeah, a seance. A seance. So, yeah, so I, this is something I try to make note of is if 
there's people are performing some sort of ritual. You know, sometimes it can be very simple. I've heard many accounts where people will say, you know, I wanted to see a UFO. I just had this thought, like, I want to see a UFO. And then boom, there's one in the sky. Yeah, heard that. Um, so this all started off with me asking about um, how do you verify these things? And part of the reason I ask is because, um, you know, if we have a great big fat book and there's all these accounts, especially the healing one, you know, perhaps some percentage of them could be, if you had $100 million to to research this, you might come up with a few that, you know, weren't as good a case as you would hope. But the overall pattern that emerges you know, if you took out, let's say, 5%, 10%, uh, you would still have a big fat book full of a lot of accounts that make the point very clearly. And that's the same thing I found with my OWL research. That's part of the reason I, you know, hit the reader over the head with so many accounts. I want them to be aware that there's this big, big pattern. Yeah, it's exactly what I found. There was a distinct pattern. And you could take out some, all of the famous cases. There's five really famous cases. The Crestview Opalaka case, the Broadhaven case, the Melbourne. We haven't even gone into the Westall High School case in Melbourne, Australia. 300 kids see a landed UFO. The Rua Zimbabwe case. Take those all out, and you still have the same exact pattern we're seeing here of UFOs targeting schools, hovering very low, landing. And man, oh man, I'm just freaking out about this. I'm glad that they're not malevolent because uh, they're coming very close to our most precious resource here. Yes, it would be a wonderful, I mean, once again, if we had $100 million, it would be wonderful to research every single one of the students, every single one of the witnesses. What are they doing now? Yeah. You know, how has their lives changed? I mean, I think of just going back to um, Emily Trim, who sort of spontaneously started to do artwork. I mean, that is a very interesting way to interact with the populace. As a, you know, some, you get a mathematician, a very rigid thinker, and, you know, they would kind of dismiss that. Like, oh, artwork, pff, like that doesn't mean anything. But it still happened. In the grand scheme of things, I think art can have a profound influence on society. Yeah. Well, my sister-in-law is a very prominent UFO artist, and is, I'm very interested in it. My other sister-in-law is an artist by profession. And if you walk around, to go outside, everything is art. I mean, the entire world is really completely art, if you look at it that way. There's beauty and form to everything. Yes, and a mathematician can certainly see that too. But yeah, I just thought it, it struck me as that, what a, what a backdoor kind of way to influence the population through art. Yeah, our, UFOs have saturated our culture. It's amazing. It's in video games, certainly, uh, movies. It's the, the most common trope in science fiction. This is something we're moving towards, is open official contact. I do think that this is a real phenomenon. I don't think it's going to go away. Uh, I can't see it going the other direction. So one day, we're gonna. this is going to be a mainstream thing. Well, it already is a mainstream thing if you just go through pop culture alone, right? I mean, how many, you know, you get like, you know, surfboards with, you know, aliens on them and, and bumper stickers with aliens on them and everyone, I mean, the, the cover of Communion is as iconic an image as Ronald McDonald. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the schoolyard, the ultimate agenda for these schoolyard visitations is to get a universal belief in UFOs. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you take everyone under... 30 or so or whatever i mean the younger generation absolutely believes this subject almost universally i agree i agree and uh, and you sort of turn the clock back and if they started taking people in 1950 boy they're not the younger generation anymore you know so if they were <laughs> having influencing the schoolyard so you know i guess you're sowing the seeds i guess my sense is whoever they are they are very patient you know, they've, if they have an agenda, they've got a timeline, it's their timeline, and it might stretch for many, many, many decades. I don't know where we are on that line right now, but that's my sense. Yeah, well, it's still going on. I've got current cases. One early case I'm particularly drawn to, it's Prestonburg Elementary School. Hey, that's your name. And, yeah, I had to laugh when I heard that. Uh, this is in Kentucky, but it's an interesting case because it's one of the few cases in which the UFOs make noise. Generally, they're silent. But these 
objects, two of them at first, and then four came back an hour later, made a deafening roar, were very, very loud, came down over the schoolyard and caused a complete panic. Children were thought it was the end of the world. Several of them got violently ill. This UFO scared the living daylights out of these poor kids, and the teacher, for that matter, Miss Alpharetta Holbrook. Man, oh man, this is the obvious case of this UFO wanting to be seen. And I thought it was interesting because there was another case just like it in Venice where a bunch of students ran outside because they heard heard a UFO. It was making this kind of roaring noise. And it, then it comes over to the school and it starts making this siren-like noise. Um, so this is drawing attention to itself on purpose, which is the theme sort of that comes across in these accounts. Yeah, yeah. There's a short account by a woman named Sharon Stull from New Mexico in 1964. Ah, that's probably the weirdest one in the whole book. And there are several cases involving physiological effects. You know, people might feel heat or static electricity. There's cases where children's speech was slurred or they all became sleepy and just weird things like this. But this case, wow, wow, this occurred like four days after the Lani Zamora landing in uh, New Mexico, and really only, gosh, 80 miles away or so. And uh, how it happened was Sharon Stahl was at Lowell Elementary School with her younger sister, Robin. There were a bunch of kids on the playground, and this egg-shaped object is pretty high up there. A bunch of kids see it. Um, Sharon's very drawn towards it, and it gets lower and lower. It's making weird motions like a yo-yo bobbing up and down. Her little sister, Robin, gets frightened and runs away, but Sharon watches this thing as it descends pretty low, and she feels some sort of link to it, like it's looking at her, and uh, eventually it just goes away, and that seems to be the end of the encounter, but she goes into her class and starts feeling unwell. Her face is burning, goes to the nurse, and the nurse is like, oh my God, you have to go to the doctor. You've been burned, and she was diagnosed with first-degree burns on her face and eyes. Uh, which caused considerable inflammation and obstruction to her eyesight. It was you know, temporary damage, thank God. But she couldn't read for a week. She had to wear dark sunglasses. She had to put lotion on her face. Doctor said it couldn't be a sunburn. It's too severe. And Sharon's like, well, I wasn't even looking at the sun. You know, it was in the other direction. And the weirdest thing is that following this encounter, in the three, four weeks following this, she experienced, Sharon, accelerated growth. She grew about a foot and became much more mature mentally. Uh, so she grew not only physically, but you know, emotionally and mentally. She started cooking and cleaning and doing chores that normally an adult would only do. Mind you, she's 10 years old. Uh, so this is an extraordinary physiological reaction, which couldn't be explained. Blue Book looked into this case, called it a hoax which makes no sense at all, because how can you fake something like this? But for that matter, Blue Book is on my naughty list because they really debunked some very major cases of schoolyard UFO encounters. Boy, there's another case which just blows my mind, which they got involved and said it was Venus. And uh, it sure wasn't, I can tell you that. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. One account you said was the Westall High School account from Australia. What happened there? Yeah, this is the ultimate case. Probably the most famous schoolyard encounter out there next to the Rua Zimbabwe case. And occurred in 1966, two weeks after the Hillsdale, Michigan case. That's the pattern we see for sure. One case will occur and then two weeks later another. And then one year later another. That, so there's this weird regularity, timing pattern to this. Such an amazing case. The Westall High School in Melbourne, Australia. It was early in the morning when suddenly someone comes running into Mr. Greenwood's class. He's a science teacher and says, there's a flying saucer over the playground there. And uh, the bell was about to ring. Everyone laughed and jumped up and wanted to run outside. He's like, no, no, wait till the bell rings. The bell rings. They all run outside. He sees it. Several teachers see it. There's about 300 students who see this thing, and they're all come outside. It's a mad dash to the fence. 
where this object comes. There's three objects, actually, and one's coming in for a landing in the pine trees there behind the school. And the braver students jump the fence and run towards it. Uh, when they get there, you know, there's a small group of students who got there before this object actually took off. And uh, one student got there and she fainted dead away. Uh, others surrounded this craft. It was very small, silver, about the size of a, a car maybe. No features on it. Uh, heat was radiating off of it. It lifts up, turns on its side, and takes off. Uh, there are some people who said that there was more than one landed, by the way. So there's some differing accounts here. But generally speaking, they agree that at least one of these objects landed. It left landing traces, which hundreds of people saw. Uh, and the landing traces were swirled grass and burned ground, actually. So this object takes off. There are planes at this point flying around the school, four or five Cessnas. Uh, trying to chase after some of these objects, which are darting and hovering and blinking in and out. And finally, all the objects take off and the planes fly away. The children go back to school. The army has arrived at this point, as has the police, as has the press, who are interviewing students. The interviews are shut down immediately by the army. A special assembly is called. Uh, meanwhile, children are being called into separate rooms and being questioned by army officials and threatened not to talk about this. Uh, the special assembly was called. Every student in the school had to go, and the headmaster said, what you saw was not a UFO. UFOs aren't real. This was a government experiment, if it was anything, and you're not to talk about it, and those who will talk about it will get detention. And he started handing out detention to various students who had already talked. Uh, so it was a big deal. They sent school home early. And uh, the one lady, she took photos, a teacher. The military confiscated that. And there was, while there was articles written about this, it was quashed pretty effectively. And for years and years, it just wasn't talked about. Years later, you know, people, students started talking. Uh, researchers started looking into it. There's a man, Shane Hurd. He's really grabbed the hold of this and is researching it. And uh, they're trying to find official documentation of it. There's nothing out there. But they're still getting witnesses. It's such an amazing case. This is really powerful. This is really powerful. Hey, we're getting near the end. I don't know how to say this. The grand conclusion of, of both. I'll just lump these two together. The healing and the schoolyard you know what's what's the agenda yeah well as far as healing i can say unequivocally and with full confidence that one of the main agendas of et races in general including grays who do are responsible for most of the healings by the way is to heal people absolutely unequivocally there's 300 cases 40 involving cancer alone all you name it. I mean, flesh wounds, certainly, uh, back injuries, headaches, ulcers, all kinds of serious diseases up and down the line, including AIDS. Uh, it's absolutely one of their agendas. And I think it speaks very much towards you know, their possible benevolence. Uh, I think that there is some negativity to this phenomena, and people do have negative experiences, but but these healing cases aren't being talked about, and most every researcher out there has gotten at least one of these types of cases. And here, let me just, so in my work, um, I put out a book a couple of years ago called um, Stories from the Messengers, and it, I did not expect this going into this book, where it's a collection of 19 stories where I follow 19 cases and, you know, really tell these stories fully. And it was only kind of in the final process of putting the book together, it's certainly not all of them, but it's the vast majority, like maybe out of the 19, maybe three don't fit this pattern, where the people who have had these complex UFO contact experiences are doing healing work. So, you know, one of them is a, is a nurse, right? So pragmatic healing work. Yeah. And other ones are, are doing, I'm, almost all of them were doing Reiki healing, which is a very odd thing that... I have a lot of that. So so it may not be the experiencer themselves that's being healed, but I have 
seen a very real pattern where it's the experiencers that are then doing healing work. Yeah, I've had to put a chapter on that as well. And it goes beyond just healing. I put a chapter on where people have been rescued of drowning, of assault, of uh, car accidents. Oh, I have a, I've heard of some amazing car accident stories being right thwarted by either ufo type things or magical powers let's just say that sometimes there's no ufo to be seen but it's someone who's had ufo contact experiences and their car accident is is thwarted by who knows what so yeah i think there's a lot of miraculous cases that are probably ufo in origin but aren't perceived that way or labeled that way uh hard to say uh, but absolutely, um, I'm very excited about that research because I think it points towards a very positive side of the ET contact. Yeah. And uh, I think we're going to get that technology. We do have it. It's in limited use already within the secret government. Uh, but I hope it gets released at some point. Hey, how how do people find you if they want to get in touch with you? I do have a website. If you just Google my name, it should take you there. It's PrestonDennett.org. Weebly.com. All my books are there. And yeah, I'd love to hear from people, whether they've got a you know, question or a comment or a story to share. Yeah, I love this stuff. What's going on in the future for you? I'm going to be speaking at UFOCon 2020 in February. I'm going to be presenting on Schoolyard UFO Encounters and uh, putting together another book, very much like my other book, Inside UFOs, which is probably my most popular book. It's it's been on the Amazon bestseller list for a while now, as have yearbooks, by the way. I see them up there. Yeah, yeah, and I've loved that Inside UFO books. I thought that was great. And I, um, there's some stories in there that blew my mind. People are interested in this subject. I'm convinced of it. Yeah, it's the most popular uh, subject on the Internet next to, well, sex is first, of course. But following that, UFOs are the most popular. And uh, we see constant shows on television uh, I, I think like you said it's busting into the mainstream we're seeing disclosure movement right now i'm super excited about where this is all going to roll out and i'm cautious to where this is all going to roll out because i think that it's it's uh behind it is a genuine mystery so i'm not sure what's rolling out if you know what i mean oh yeah i think there's well the experiencers say there's going to be some fundamental changes you know and i think that's gonna happen i'm nervous about it because we're in a very volatile time right now in terms of greed and divisiveness and the inequity of wealth on our planet can't go on forever and uh, i think we're probably gonna have a rough time of it coming up here um certainly that's what the ets are saying if we don't start taking care of ourselves and yes i have heard the same thing the rough thing but as like you i have a Oh, I don't want to, I just feel like maybe I'm deceiving myself and I want this, but I want this stuff to have a positive agenda. And maybe that's what I'm seeing. I feel like I've been at this not as long as you have, but what I'm sensing is that behind it all is some force that that is, it's certainly not evil. Let me put it that way. Whatever's going on, it feels like the phenomena itself wants to influence us in some positive way. Yeah, I'm convinced we're dealing with extraterrestrials in the classic sense, at least to a large extent, in terms of you know biological beings from other planets. Uh, and I'm reluctant to lump the UFO phenomena together because it's a lot of stuff is going on here. We have angelic visitations. Uh, you know, there's a large portion of the population who are convinced UFOs are demonic. And they're not, but demons are real. There are dark ghosts out there. I looked into that as well and talked to people who've been possessed. And man, oh man, it's scary stuff. Uh, you have all kinds of interdimensional beings out there, uh, enlightened masters. So I'm reluctant to lump all these phenomena together, whether it's near-death experiences or what have you. Because I feel like we're dealing with separate things. And when it comes to UFOs, well, if we have the crashed saucers, if we have the alien bodies, all bets are off. I mean, we know what it is. We know what we're dealing with. And I feel like we're almost at that point. While we don't have access to that information uh, in the general public, 
people do have access to it. And there's enough whistleblowers out there to say that, yes, we do have the alien bodies and the craft. So to me, I mean, I just can't get away from the extraterrestrial hypothesis and that we're dealing with beings who are like us, but perhaps very advanced technologically and spiritually to the point where they have a handle on the other dimensions and can do stuff that looks like magic and is very strange to us. Agreed, and they seem to have an agenda. Yes, they sure do. Preston, this has been a delight. I look forward to talking with you more. Let's talk when your next book comes out. Hey, you got it. Thank you. Great. You're very welcome. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the final edit. Uh, A few points in this interview, Preston said, man, oh, man. And And I think he's correct. Wow. Man, oh, man. He has added a lot of important puzzle pieces to this very complicated mystery. I would like to take this moment to thank Lauren Cutts for the intro and outro music. And I would also like to thank Andrea Villiers on the gong. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.